Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm Professor of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm the Chief of Pediatric Cardiology. Thank you very much for joining us this week for our 181st episode of the podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed last week's episode on the topic of fetal cardiology and complete heart block. We spoke with Assistant Professor of Pediatrics here at my own institution at Mount Sinai, Dr. Justin Pick, about a recent paper he wrote with the team at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. For those of you with an interest in fetal cardiology or congenital complete heart block, I'd recommend you take a listen to last week's episode, 180. As I say every week, if you'd like to get in touch with me, it's easy to remember my email. It's pdheart at gmail.com. This week, we move on to the world of cardiac critical care. And the title of the work we'll be reviewing is Prevalence of ICU Delirium in Postoperative Pediatric Cardiac Surgery Patients. The first author of this work is Sandra Stavesky, and the senior author of this work is Martha Curley. And this work comes to us from multiple centers throughout the United States. Dr. Stavesky is a nurse leader who comes to us from the University of California in San Francisco. When we're done reviewing the paper, Dr. Stavesky has kindly agreed to speak with us about it. Therefore, let's move straight on to the article and then our conversation with Dr. Stavesky. This week's work reviews the topic of postoperative pediatric cardiac surgical ICU delirium. I'll remind the audience that delirium is a disturbance of consciousness with inattention that is accompanied by a change in cognition or perceptual disturbance that develops over a short period of time in the ICU, and it's been estimated that up to 80% of those who are mechanically ventilated in the ICU can develop delirium and it's associated with many negative outcomes, including enhanced or increased length of stay, decreased survival, and cognitive dysfunction. The authors review the prior literature on this topic and explain that multiple risk factors have been described to be associated with the development of delirium in the pediatric ICU patient, such as age or gender, postoperative clinical characteristics, and also modifiable risk factors like exposure to ICU treatments or sedatives. There is, according to the authors, a true paucity of data on this topic in regards to the postoperative pediatric cardiac patient. The investigators then explain that prior work suggests that about a quarter of all kids in PICUs screen positive for delirium, and there have been a few single-center studies suggesting that after bypass, that number could rise as high as 49 to 57 percent of all post-op cardiac surgical patients. With this as a background, the authors state that the objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of ICU delirium in children less than 18 years of age that underwent cardiac surgery across multiple North American critical care units, with a secondary aim of identifying risk factors associated with ICU delirium in postoperative pediatric cardiac surgical patients. The authors conducted a so-called point prevalence study, which simply means that they were attempting to identify the prevalence of ICU delirium in this patient group at a particular point in time which for this work was a randomly chosen date on one of two days in a two-week period. If for some reason the study could not be conducted on one of those days at a particular center, a third random day was included as a makeup date. The authors explained that on that randomly assigned day, the participating center would enroll all children less than 18 years of age who had cardiac surgery within the past 30 days and who were in their unit at 6 a.m., and they excluded anyone who was not expected to live past the following 24 hours. Also excluded were those who were not able to be screened because they were completely unresponsive from sedation, as measured by the state behavioral scale scores of minus 2 to minus 3. 
patients who were neuromuscular blockaded, and finally those who had a past history of severe neurologic disability. The patients were assessed using a previously developed screening tool called the Cornell Assessment of Pediatric Delirium Scale, which is an eight-item questionnaire that can be completed in less than two minutes, and it's designed to be completed by the bedside nurse at the end of the shift so that the nurse had a good sample of the patient after an entire shift. The authors note that this scale was used because it is one of the only good validated ones for delirium in children that is also usable for kids less than six months of age. The authors also mentioned that other validated instruments were used, such as the Watt score and state behavioral score, as well as various pain scales. Finally, the authors recorded the RACS-1 score to assess the level of risk of the patients, and the authors mentioned many, many data that were collected. The investigators explained that the data was collected in every center at 6 a.m. at all centers, with the study teams working with the bedside nurse to complete the state behavioral scale score, the Watt score, and the Cornell Assessment of Pediatric Delirium scores. And on to the results. There were 27 North American Pediatric Critical Care or Cardiac Critical Care units included, and the authors note that the majority of ICUs had over 20 beds dedicated to pediatric cardiac surgical patients. The median number of surgeons per center in this study was three, and 44% of centers were performing between 200 and 400 surgeries annually. Interestingly, only 13 of 27 centers routinely use delirium tools, and few use sedation or early ambulation protocols, and none used noise or day-night cycling protocols. Interestingly, delirium rates were higher in units with more than 400 cardiac surgeries annually. Overall, 181 patients were included in this study. And what were the main findings? Well, first, and perhaps most importantly, 40% of all patients screened positive for delirium. Importantly, there were no clinical or statistically significant differences in patient demographics, past medical history, severity of defect, or surgical procedure between participants who screened positive or negative for delirium. Using a bivariate analysis, the authors found that patients who screened positive for delirium had a longer duration of mechanical ventilation, 12.8 versus 5.1 days, and required more invasive catheters, 4 versus 3. Delirium-positive patients also received more total opioid exposure, did not have an ambulation or physical therapy schedule, and had not been out of bed in the prior 24 hours. Interestingly, the absence of a parent at the bedside at the time of data collection was also associated with delirium. The authors then performed a mixed effects logistic regression analysis of modifiable risk factors, and they identified six factors that were associated with a positive delirium screen, and these included higher pain scores, more opioid exposure, a state behavioral scale score less than zero, pain medication having been given in the prior two hours to the test, no physical therapy or ambulation schedule in the medical record, and finally, parents not at the bedside when the data was collected. In their discussion, the authors state, and I quote, in this point prevalent study of pediatric postoperative cardiac surgery patients, we report a 40% prevalence of delirium. This rate is higher than previous estimates and suggests that delirium may be under-recognized without routine screening. Our prevalence rates are consistent with previous single-center pediatric cardiac ICU and general PICU studies. Routine delirium screening allows early recognition and alerts the clinical team that further evaluation is necessary to make a definitive diagnosis of delirium. 
The authors continue to state that it is their view that the lack of documentation in the medical record regarding documentation of delirium scores is, to use their words, alarming and means that it is likely happening and is unrecognized and untreated. The authors mention how so many of the findings in this work that are associated with enhanced delirium essentially describe the sicker and more fragile patient, and they wonder if clinical interventions examining the effect of nurse-led environmental care and ventilator sedation weaning protocols could prove useful in reducing delirium. They note how the use of opioids in this work was associated with more delirium, and how prior work suggests that benzodiazepines are also associated with this, and they mention how balancing pain and anxiety relief with the risk for delirium is quite a challenge. They also mentioned the impact of physical therapy and early out-of-bed protocols, and how this has been shown in smaller studies to be associated with better outcomes, and how nurses can advocate for these interventions. And they mentioned the challenges of managing the post-op patient in that the goal should be to have an awake but painless patient, and how these are not always two factors that can be achieved at the same time. The authors review the various limitations of this work, including the limitations of a point prevalence study, the possibility that participating centers in this work may have been more in tune with the issue of delirium in the first place, the lack of generalizability outside North America, and possible biases in the collectors of the Cornell delirium scores. And so they conclude, we found delirium to be a common problem after cardiac surgery with several important modifiable risk factors. Well, I think you'll agree that this is indeed somewhat alarming to see how many of our patients have this problem. I'm interested to learn how nurses can modify bedside environments to reduce delirium, and also to see what their thoughts are regarding why it might be that there seem to be more delirium in the busier, larger programs. There's a lot to consider here, and so at this point, I think we should move straight on to the author of this work, Dr. Stavesky, to get her view on things. Joining us now to discuss this week's work is assistant professor and nurse scientist at UCSF in the Department of Family Health Care Nursing, Dr. Sandra Stavesky. Dr. Stavesky obtained her bachelor's degree in nursing at Western Connecticut State University, followed by master's and Ph.D. in nursing at the University of California. Review of her CV suggests that she has pretty much done everything in pediatric nursing and has received multiple grants to study many different aspects of nursing care in the CICU and she is obviously an expert on the topic of this particular study on delirium in the post-op pediatric patient. It is a treat to have a nursing leader join us this week to discuss this important work. Welcome, Dr. Stavesky. I'm here now with Dr. Sandra Stavesky. Dr. Stavesky, thank you very much for joining us. You are our second nursing expert on the podcast after Dr. Lasante from CHOP. Awesome. Dr. Lasante does excellent work. And she's a co-author on your paper, so uh, nice, nice continuum. Uh, very much enjoyed this work, and I thought we would just start at the beginning, and I hope you apologize for the sort of basic nature of this question. Delirium is clearly the thing that your entire paper is about, and it's what we're trying to reduce in our patients. For those of us who are unfamiliar, what do we know about pediatric delirium in the PICU patient? And why is this something that's so important to try and minimize or avoid entirely? Well, if I told you that 40% of your patients had acute kidney injury, would that get your attention? Most certainly. So um, the definition for delirium is acute cerebral injury, but we don't really look at it from that perspective. Um, general PICUs are much more 
in tune with delirium or have gone further along than we in cardiac ICUs. So I think it's important because we really don't know the long-term effects of having delirium in children at this point in time. But if you look with adults, um, they have long-term cognitive impairment. They also have more risk for depression and PTSD and anxiety and, um, you know, have described having hallucinations in their ICU stays. So I just really think about our young children who are in an ICU um, who may be having like horrible hallucinations but can't really um, tell us that. One, they're typically intubated. Um, and two, you know, they may not have the cognitive um, abilities at this point in time developmentally to be able to describe that to us. I see. Well, very interesting indeed. Um, you know, Dr. Stavesky, one of the findings of your work was that delirium was more commonly seen in centers that actually perform more surgery, which I found quite interesting. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on why the bigger, more busy centers actually had higher incidences of delirium. I have a couple of hypotheses. I don't have any um, data to back these up, but you know, I'm thinking that centers that do greater than 400 um, cases a year likely are also getting referrals that are extraordinarily ill. You know, um, I used to work at Stanford, so I'll use that as an, um, an example. Uh, when I was an NP, you know, we would have typically patients that came in for you know, um, unifocalization for their MAPCAs and can stay in the ICU for a long time yes. um, or severe heart failure and stay in the ICU for a significant amount of time and be exposed to a lot of opioids and benzodiazepines, which are um, predisposing to getting delirium. That's my best hypothesis. I would be interested if, in your thoughts. I, I really don't know. I, I found it. That's why I thought I'd ask the world's authority on this. It's uh, interesting to me. You know, I, I didn't, you know, for those in the audience, I often will review the questions with the guest in advance. One question I had for you, Dr. Stavesky, you know, clearly use of benzodiazepines and um, opioids are associated with this problem. Do you have any thoughts about dexmedetomidine, which seems to be being used like water uh, yeah. in ICUs? Is this having a positive or a negative impact on this problem in your view? In my view, I think the short-term use of dexmedetomidine as it's um, designed to be um, for one to two days, I think has probably has a positive effect on delirium. I'm not clear if there is long-term issues when you have, let's say, fentanyl or morphine infusion, uh, a um, benzodiazepine, something like Versed, and then you step up to adding dex to that picture. If that doesn't, you know, could have different um, types of effects. And so right now we're doing a longitudinal observational study looking um, 
specifically at children and their delirium status and looking at many different factors that could cause delirium. So looking at things like what is their total opioid exposure over time? What's their precedex exposure over time? So we're hoping to have some answers hmm. to that question. Um, wow. But I, hypothes I, I hypothesize that um, it's going to be a complicated picture with Dex in, in there. Yeah, good luck with that analysis. I, I, I'm interested myself, especially after reading your very interesting paper. You know, uh, in your discussion in your paper, you mention how nurses can improve the environment of a post-operative patient to reduce the risk for delirium. I thought this was really fascinating and very impactful. And I'm wondering if you could comment on this for the audience and maybe share with us what some of the interventions could be that nursing can do to make the environment around that patient uh, more conducive to not having delirium. Yeah, you know, I I would um, ask the audience someday to come into the IC their ICU and just sit there and think about how much noise and how much light happens. Like there were times when at five o'clock in the morning, there was this big like Zamboni-like machine cleaning the floor, you know, <laughs> and, you know, if there's constant noise constant light or constant dark, it's easy for your circadian rhythm to get um, off balance or to not be able to sleep. So I think nursing can do a lot to making the environment more conducive to the child, you know. Um, Certainly, you have to worry about the child's stability, and you can't turn off the lights at night if they're labile, but maybe you can dim the lights and have them brighter in the daytime. You know, it's interesting. Early in my career in the early 1990s when I was an intern and I worked in neonatal ICUs, one had to make an appointment with the nurse to examine mm -hmm. the patient. And I noticed that a lot of that seems to have fallen by the wayside. And I, I, I wonder if this is just the pendulum sort of swinging back the other way again, um, realizing that there may have been uh, more to that, that intervention than we ever thought. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, nursing plays such a critical role in how the patient's experiences, how their stability is. And I think that empowering our nursing staff to um, be the gatekeepers for our, our patients is probably, there's more to it than um, we gave it credit for. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, uh, similar to the environment, your work also highlighted the impact of post-operative walking, and physical therapy on reduction for delirium. I'm wondering if you might be able to offer for us a theory on why you think it is that these interventions are important to try and prevent the development of delirium. Well, I think for two things. Um, one, typically in the daytime, we are all running around doing something. And that a gets us tired so that you can sleep um, at night, and B, um, it kind of it helps to set your circadian rhythm 
Um, so if you're tired and you have a normal um, day-night rhythm, I think that um, walking can help both of those things. Right, right. And it helps with the respiratory system and people feeling better overall. So, you know, I think our interprofessional practice with um, physical therapy and occupational therapy and setting schedules for patients is very important. As is the parents, what we found was a little, was very novel. Um, I don't think it was described in the pediatric literature before, but if parents were at the bedside and participating in care, there was actually less delirium in that group. So, you know, I think it it's also getting parents involved and holding kids that maybe can't walk. And that actually is uh, some of the some of the if the work that Dr. Lasanti has shown uh, previously. So uh, I guess nice to see consistent messages for sure. Well, uh, uh, Dr. Stavesky, I really appreciate all the time you're giving us this week. I'm going to finish up with uh, one last question. You know, and this is probably one of the harder ones that I'm going to ask you. It seems that being awake but not in pain is an important goal in the avoidance of delirium. Um, and that is not always, those are two goals that are not always confluent with one another. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could comment on the subtleties of this and how nursing can help to achieve this goal. Yeah, I think um, nursing certainly has the largest ownership of practice here. But I also think it's interprofessional. So I think that having consistent messaging um, on rounds with our physician colleagues, that that that's what we're shooting for. Like we want a calm, awake child who's like a zero SBS score and that we want their pain score less than four to have mild pain. I think that communication sets the stage for the nurse to know what she's trying to shoot for. I also think that it's easier to do that sort of work using other sources like massage therapy or, you know, music therapy to help um, keep the child calm and, you know, like really distracting them from what's going on in the ICU at times too. So, you know, having adequate nursing staffing so that they can um, use those other non-pharmacologic interventions along with appropriate opioid use first before any sort of benzodiazepine or sedative agent is important. Well, I have to say, you know, having read your CV, you have really done everything in the world of cardiac critical care for children. And it is really an honor for us to have such a prominent and important uh, nursing educator nursing leader, nursing scientist uh, to speak with us this week. I really can't thank you enough, and I wish to congratulate you and your very many, many authors and many centers on what I think is a very important contribution, and I'm so happy that we were able to speak today on the podcast. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Thank you for the opportunity.
great pleasure. Well, I think you will agree that it was terrific to have such a thoughtful and knowledgeable nursing expert and scientist like Professor Stavesky join us this week. She made a number of important points about delirium and the critical role of the nurse in helping to reduce this complication. Off air, she told me that in her view, to a very real degree, she believes that the bedside nurse in a CICU is the patient's, to use her term, personal safety officer, and I thought how apt that description is. How many times has the bedside nurse protected the patient from so many different potential problems? The list of bad things that can happen to our patients in the CICU seems to be gigantic. And really, I think that calling the bedside nurse a personal safety officer is one of the very best descriptions of that role in the CICU. And today, I think we learned of yet another risk beyond the myriad other risks, that of delirium, which our nursing colleagues must guard against. I wish once more to thank Professor Stavesky for her time and insights. I so enjoyed her comments. I hope you did as well. To conclude this 181st episode of the podcast, I thought I would mention that we hit a real milestone for the podcast this past week as we exceeded 500,000 downloads. I must be honest in stating that I am astonished to see how many listen to this work each week, and I want to thank all of you for your enthusiasm and for listening and also wish, of course, to thank our wonderful guests who really do make the show. As you know, I've ended each week's episode with opera and plan on continuing to do so because of my love of this art form. However, I found it humorous that since I began this podcast, whenever I'm asked to speak about pediatric cardiology in any forum or meeting, I'm increasingly asked if I was planning on singing. I do love to sing, though certainly am only marginally talented in this arena. However, As we have hit a milestone for the podcast, I thought I would perhaps for just this episode sing this brief music myself for the ending of this episode, and in so doing, join my dear friend Leo Lopez as the only other physician to sing at the end of the podcast. I'll try my best to sing the beautiful Schumann song, Herr Ich das Liedchen Klingen, from his Dichteliebe song cycle. The words of this song translate... When I hear the little song that my love once sang, my heart almost bursts with the wild rush of pain. A dark longing drives me out to the wooded heights where my overwhelming grief dissolves in tears. I apologize for this most unprofessional performance and promise going forward to return to the real prose. However, for this one time, I figured I'd respond to the requests that have been made. Thank you very much for joining the podcasts for all these three years and downloading it over a half a million times. I am most appreciative. Schmerzen drang, 
Mein lieber Großer Sohn.